Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Here we go. It's Sunday, November 29, 2021. I hope everybody had a happy Thanksgiving. I hope everybody is doing well, but it is time to put aside the turkey and the stuffing because we got a mega story, and it's crazy, right? Because I came into Sunday, and I thought I had so much to talk about. I thought I was going to talk about Michigan-Ohio State. I thought I was going to talk about the Iron Bowl. I thought I was going to talk about Billy Napier becoming the head coach at Florida, and instead, the whole rundown's blown up. Lincoln Riley is the head coach at USC, and so what I think the plan is this. We're going to open with Lincoln Riley, and I'm just going to go off the top of my head. I'm going to tell you what I feel. I'm going to tell you my reaction, and we'll go until we go. From there, we will then transition to Ohio State, Michigan. From there, we will transition to the Iron Bowl. From there, maybe even a little bit of the college football playoff picture. I was going to talk Bedlam, but what's the point? Half the coaches in the game last night aren't even at their schools anymore. Then we'll get to Billy Napier. I was going to do Gonzaga Duke. I was at the game. What a game that it was. But at this point, I kind of feel, Gonzaga Duke, who cares? Who cares about Gonzaga Duke? Let's talk about Lincoln Riley. And so that, with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, let me just say, I say it all the time. I love doing this show. It's my great joy in life. It is my baby. It is everything that I have ever wanted to do in my career. I love putting on this mic, and I love talking sports. But there are some days that I am so excited to talk on this show And this is one of those days because I truly believe that Lincoln Riley leaving Oklahoma for USC is both one of the single most shocking things that I can ever remember in sports. And I also think it is one of the single most important things that has happened in college sports over the last probably 20 years in terms of college football. So I'm going to go off the top of my head. I'm going to share as much as I can. going to try to keep it as organized as I can. But let me start by saying this. Let me start by kind of going through the entire timeline of this. Because USC opened in early September. LSU opened in early October. And at the time, you start to hear all sorts of candidates. Mike Tomlin was there. Dabo Sweeney was there for a minute. Mel Tucker, James Franklin, whatever. About three or four weeks ago, 
Lincoln Riley's name started to emerge as a head coaching candidate for LSU, not USC. And he kind of gave a non-denial, you know I love it here, he doesn't really say that he's interested, um, and the, the topic keeps going on and on and on and on and on, until of course Saturday night he's asked about LSU and he says, oh I'm not going to LSU, I'm not going to be the next head coach at LSU, and instead he chooses USC. But I bring all that up for a very simple reason. I get a lot of stuff wrong on this show. But what have I told you about these Lincoln-Riley rumors from the beginning? He did not give the Mike Tomlin denial. He did not give the Jimbo Fisher denial, which I talked about last week. He danced around it, and then that rumor lingered that he was interested in leaving Oklahoma for about two, three, four weeks. And what I always say, what I always tell you, when something is out there for that long, it means that that person or someone close to that person wants that rumor to be out there. So whether it was because of the fact that he wanted a raise, whether it was because of the fact that he didn't like the AD, whether it was because of the fact that he didn't believe that Oklahoma going to the SEC was the right move, which we'll get into in a minute, there was a reason that Lincoln Riley's name continued to be out there. People in the media continue to talk about it. And it is because somebody wanted that news out there that he was willing to be open to the idea of leaving Oklahoma and that officially happened on Saturday, on Sunday, as he chose USC. Now, why he chose Oklahoma, let's get into that. Because to me, I think there is one very clear reason. And what did I tell you when the LSU job opened up? I said this. I said, Scott Woodward is going to knock down every single door. Scott Woodward is the LSU AD. Because he knows that in one year, a lot can change. A coach can be perfectly happy someplace, and then something happens, and there everything changes. It happened for Jimbo Fisher. He's happy at Florida State, decides a year later it's time to move on. And I truly believe that Oklahoma deciding to leave for the SEC is the reason that Lincoln Riley is no longer your head coach at Oklahoma. I could be wrong. He'll never admit it. He'll never say it. But a year ago at this time, I think Lincoln Riley could have been the Oklahoma head coach for 20 years. I think that the only place he was leaving for is the NFL. And I think that the move to the SEC changed everything. Because Oklahoma right now in the Big 12 is perfectly built to win at the highest levels of college football. It's almost like Ohio State. We'll talk about Ohio State. I know they just lost to Michigan. But in most years, why Urban Meyer was so great at Ohio State, and if he could have gotten out of his own way, could have been there for you know an extra 10 years is that Ohio State was built to win 10 or 11 games on their schedule every year. And it was the same with Oklahoma. I know the fans were frustrated with Kansas State and Iowa State and Baylor being on the schedule. Should have beat Baylor this year, by the way, if you're so frustrated. But at the same time, for a coach, it's perfect in this modern era because you now have 8, 10, 12 games to get ready ramp up, and in a good season, you'll get ready for the playoff, and hopefully by then you'll be ready to compete. You don't have to deal with the wars that you deal with every, every week in the SEC where you're playing Georgia one week and LSU the next. LSU one week and Florida the next. Florida one week and Alabama the next. Lane Kiffin here, Mike Leach there. On and on and on and on and on. You don't have to deal with that at Oklahoma. You don't have to deal with that at Ohio State. And so when Lincoln Riley, forget USC for a second, when his name came up for LSU, I said, I believe the reason that Lincoln Riley's name is up is this. 
he knows that he cannot win at the highest levels in the SEC that he has at Oklahoma. He knows that the path is much tougher and that even in a 12-team playoff era where, yeah, you can probably be the third or fourth team and get in, Oklahoma is used to winning 10 or 11 games per year. He is not going to be able to maintain that. And it doesn't matter how good of a coach he is. He just can't do that. And so because of that, it makes a ton of sense for him to start looking around because let's take LSU before we get to USC. LSU, he can recruit the players that he needs to win the national championship. The last three coaches have won national championships. The depth and size and athleticism that you need at every position, not just quarterback and not just wide receiver, you could do that at LSU. And so I believe that Oklahoma leaving for the SEC is the reason that Lincoln Riley is USC's head coach. I do not believe that he thinks that he could win at the highest level at Oklahoma when they were in the SEC. That is why he decided to go. That is why he was out. And if that's the case, and we will never know, let me tell you this. I think it was an all-time tactical mistake by Oklahoma. I give Oklahoma credit. I understand they wanted more money. But look at where, like, like, think about where Oklahoma is now. And think about what it's going to be like when you have to play LSU, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Auburn, Texas A&M, Ole Miss, every single week. I said it at the time. When the rumor first happened, I remember saying it doesn't make sense because Oklahoma, who cares how much money you have? You have, you have it so set up, so perfectly to make a run at the college football playoff every year, and you just gave that up. And I believe that that cost them and a potentially iconic head coach that I believe eventually could have built them into a national championship contender, but I don't think that he believes that he would have had time to at Oklahoma if they're in the SEC as early as next year. That is why I believe Lincoln Riley left Oklahoma. Now let's talk about what Lincoln freaking Riley can do as the head coach at USC, because I'll tell you, the sky is the limit. And it isn't often that we say this, and look, we get this stuff wrong, right? Like, we thought Harbaugh was going to run through the Big Ten, and he mostly has, and we're going to talk about him in a minute. He had the incredible win over Ohio State, but it took him seven years to win, win the Big Ten. And so no hire is guaranteed, not even Lincoln Riley at USC. But it is hard for me to think of a single coach in college football right now that is better equipped to win at the highest levels of college football than Lincoln Riley at USC. Because think about it. First of all, this is a guy that can already recruit elite quarterbacks and elite skill position guys anywhere. He is now going to the cradle of quarterbacks in Southern California. We know the names of the quarterbacks from Southern California that are currently dominating college football. Bryce Young, who I believe will win a Heisman, is from Pasadena. C.J. Stroud is from Rancho Cucamonga, I believe. Uh, D.J. Uyla is from somewhere in Southern California. Matt Corral is from Ventura County, which is in Southern California. Well, now Lincoln Riley, those guys are all in his backyard. I should mention, by the way, the top 2023 high school quarterback is already committed to Oklahoma, which means that, you know, in the next couple weeks, he's going to be committed to USC because he wasn't committing to Oklahoma to play for the Sooners. He was committing to play for Lincoln Riley. And so I bring all of this up to just say he already could get the best quarterbacks and skill position players in the country. Now he is in a hotbed in Southern California where he is going to run train, for lack of a better term, everywhere else, where the skill position guys are there at corner, at safety, at wide receiver. They're all there for USC to win at the highest level. Yes, he's going to need to sign uh, uh, the big guys up front, the offensive and defensive linemen, but let me tell you, 
When you have a chance to come to USC and play for Lincoln Riley, you take full advantage of that. And so when I look at a scenario, this is like a perfect best-case scenario. USC already has a really talented quarterback on the roster named Jackson Dart. Never forget, in the one-time transfer era, Lincoln Riley can bring Caleb freaking Williams with him to USC if Caleb Williams chooses and wants to come to USC. He can bring whoever he wants from Oklahoma. And I believe there's NCAA rules that you can't tamper and you can't do all that. But if they hit the portal, you know they're going to go to USC. So he can restock a roster that's already pretty talented, and now he can recruit and he can continue to do what he's doing at Oklahoma where he has built a program or really maintained. I know that Bob Stoops built it, all that stuff, but that wins 10, 11 games a year. He has the blueprint. He knows how to recruit. He knows how to sell. He will bring that blueprint to USC the same way that Urban Meyer brought his blueprint from the SEC to Ohio State, and it changed the Big, 12, it changed the Big Ten. Urban Meyer just recruited, coached, coordinators. Everything was completely different in how Urban Meyer ran his program, and it changed the Big Ten where Penn State had to keep up, where Michigan had to keep up, where Michigan State is now paying a coach almost $10 million per year. And I believe Lincoln Riley is going to have that effect because the national championship caliber blueprint is there where he now knows what he is capable of doing how to build the program, what it looks like, who you have to hire, how many support staff, what recruiting role, all that stuff. And so this is a program that I I now believe the talent is there to compete at the highest level right away. Do I think they'll make the playoff in year one? I don't. But I think you get Lincoln Riley in there. You get the right quarterback in there. There is no reason to think why USC cannot be a playoff contender in, in as early as year two. As early as year two, I believe that USC can be a playoff contender because this is a guy that is going to put up points. This is a guy that is going to be able to recruit the players that you need to recruit, develop the players you need to develop them, and USC now is built to be back, okay? I don't think they're toppling Alabama because Alabama's once one of a kind. Georgia's going to be there. Ohio State's going to be there. But now you talk about a coach with a brand going to a place where he has all the players he'll ever need. And I think in some ways it changes college football as well just because of the fact that for the last three, four years, all of these other programs have been able to come into Southern California and basically get whoever they want. Not just the quarterbacks, but there's skill position guys all over the country in these other places from Southern California that didn't want to stay in the Pac-12, and now they will, and many of them anyway, because of Lincoln Riley. So this is huge. This is mega. I believe within two years... He can have USC in the mix in the college football playoff conversation. Really quickly, let's talk about a few other elements of this job. One, first of all, let me just say this. LSU is in a very precarious situation right now because they super slow played this whole process. I believe I believe they thought they were going to get Lincoln Riley, okay? So here is my, my actual thought on how this happened. I believe that Scott Woodward, as I've talked about so many times on this podcast, Scott Woodward is the most aggressive AD in all of college football. And I believe that Scott Woodward somehow figured out that Lincoln Riley was willing to move and willing to take another head coaching job. And I believe that once USC got wind of that, they put their little nose in the other, they go, start sniffing around. They said, well, if he's going to go there, why don't we try to convince him to come here and see if he will take our job as the head coach at USC? So I could be wrong on that, but I do wonder if LSU kind of 
kind of created the market for Lincoln Riley that nobody knew that a market even existed. And now I don't know where they go. Because Billy Napier was the guy that you knew was going to take the job. He had made it publicly clear, I am not doing anything until LSU makes its decision. I think he would have been pretty good at LSU. But I also think if you could get Lincoln Riley, you don't take Billy Napier. But in the process, Mel Tucker got a raise. James Franklin got a raise. Um, P.J. Fleck, who wasn't a candidate there, but he got a raise. Dave Aranda's probably going to get a raise. And so now, where does LSU go to get the guy that they want? And I think they might have gotten Lincoln Riley if they could have kept it a little bit more under wraps because it is clear that he was open to the idea of moving. So that's my first thought on this. The second thought, I'll just be honest. One, I think Oklahoma screwed this up big time. I really, truly do. I really, truly believe that they screwed this up big time by going to the SEC. I said it when it happened. It does not matter how much money you are going to make. You cannot put a price on winning. And I've used a million different examples. And I've talked all about it. And I don't want to get into it on and on and on over and over and over again. But I just, I just go back to this idea. And I just go back to the idea that if he had just stayed in the Big 12, everything would have been fine. And I don't know where they go from there. You know, obviously the obvious name that will come up, Josh Heupel, the head coach of Tennessee. And I get it. Like, I get Josh Heupel going there. But what I would also say, and this is going to sound crazy, in the new modern era of college football, where Oklahoma is now in the SEC, is Oklahoma even a fundamentally better job than Tennessee? And by the way, I should mention, for people who don't know, Josh Heupel was a quarterback at Oklahoma, won a national championship at Oklahoma. But one, is that job even better? And two, let's also never forget that Josh Heupel was fired by his previous head coach, Bob Stoops. And so does he want to go back to a place that fired him, that almost cost him his career? Now, he bounced back. He's doing well. But I don't know. And I don't know that Oklahoma's a fundamentally better job than Tennessee anymore. It would be in the Big 12 era. They ain't going to be in the Big 12 for much longer. And so to me, I don't know what Oklahoma does from here, but it's setting up for a fascinating coaching search. Maybe Bob Stoops comes back. I don't know. I don't know. But what I will tell you is, and I said this to lead the segment, There are not many days in college sports, in college football, in sports in general, that you feel like there is a move that fundamentally changes the sport as we know it. I believe that Lincoln Riley going to USC does that. I believe they can compete at the highest level. I believe they can compete for national championships. I believe that it changes the entire trajectory of the Pac-12. And I believe it's a great day for USC and it's a great day for the Pac-12. Lincoln Riley is the head coach at USC. I, can't, I cannot wrap my head around the idea that Lincoln Riley is the head coach at USC. This is great for the program. This is great for the Pac-12. I totally believe that it's predicated on the idea of Oklahoma going to the SEC. We will never know. But man, you think college football is crazy. What? I don't, I don't even know. I don't even know. I need a quick break. So I'm going to come back. I'm going to talk about Michigan, Ohio State, Alabama, Ohio State, or Alabama, Auburn in the Iron Bowl. And just, you know, I don't even, I, what am I going to do? Lincoln Riley is the USC head coach. I need a break. I need a cold one. I'll be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. And I do want to switch gears. And I guess we got to talk about some games on the field. Lincoln Riley, your freaking USC head coach. 
But let's get to some of the games on the field. I'm just going to be totally transparent with you. I recorded the front end of this podcast before the Lincoln-Riley news. I recorded thoughts on Michigan-Ohio State. I recorded thoughts on Auburn-Alabama before all the Lincoln-Riley news happened. So we're going to toss to Michigan-Ohio State in a minute. Uh, But just be aware and have a little consideration. If I yell and scream and say, oh, it's the biggest thing that happened all weekend. It's the biggest No, Lincoln Riley is probably the biggest topic, but Michigan-Ohio State was huge. Alabama-Auburn was huge. So with that said, forgive me if some of the hyperbole feels like a lot considering the Lincoln Riley news. But with that said, let's get to the game of the weekend. And the game of the weekend, we all know what it was. Hail to the victors, valiant. Hail to the, 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 the... All right, I don't really know the words beyond like the first verse, but how about those Michigan Wolverines, 42 to 27, Final score, first win for Michigan against Ohio State since 2011. And in some ways, it's really their first win against Ohio State since 2003 because of the fact that in 2011, not to take away from Michigan, but of course, Ohio State had an interim head coach. Ohio State had Luke Fickle. They were transitioning from Jim Tressel to Urban Meyer. And so this was the first just wire-to-wire butt-kicking of Ohio State by Michigan that we've seen in quite some time. And so let's talk about it. Let's break it down. Let me start by saying this. If you listen to Friday's show, I by no means can take credit for saying that I picked Ohio State or Michigan to beat Ohio State because I didn't. But I did say to be careful and that this game would be competitive. And I do think what happens sometimes kind of in in the world that we live in, it's not just the media, it's not just me, it's not just you, but we get so caught up in the last thing that we've seen that I think we, we, we lose focus of the bigger picture here. And if you listen to Friday's show, what you heard was me say that I believed that Michigan could make this game competitive. Didn't know if they could win, but what I did say was that I thought there was too much focus being put on that Ohio State-Michigan State game, the recency effect in full play there, as Ohio State, I believed, was uniquely built to embarrass Michigan State with their uh, basically the most explosive pass offense in college football going up against the worst statistical pass defense in college football in Michigan State and that was coming into the game let alone out of it and so could could I have predicted 49 nothing at the half of course not but I did think Ohio State was going to win I did believe they were going to cover and I did believe that if you've watched Michigan all year you knew they were going to put up a much better effort than Michigan State did two weeks ago the bottom line is Michigan State, uh, Michigan, if you follow them, elite pass rush, which was obviously on full display Saturday. Uh, great corners, great defensive backs. It was, this was statistically the best pass defense that Michigan had played all year, or that Ohio State had played all year. Michigan obviously had the ground game to slow down and keep Ohio State's offense off the field. And it just felt like this was a real shot for Michigan, I will add. When I did see the fact that it was snowing on Saturday morning, I said, if Harbaugh can't do it this year, he might never. Well, the great news is for Jim Harbaugh, if you listen to this show, Coach Harbaugh, you never have have to answer these questions again. 42-27 42-27 is the final score. And I think the bigger picture to me, and I think it's the bigger picture to most of you, is, is that this was just a butt-kicking from beginning to end. Yes, I thought that Ohio State was uniquely built to embarrass Michigan State. Yes, I thought that Michigan could keep it competitive. I did not think that Michigan could do to Ohio State what they did. Opening drive, 10 plays, 75 yards, uh, right down their throats. Uh, hold them to a field goal next possession. 
drive the field again. Cade McNamara interception. But, but those first few drives really did set the tone for the game where outside of a short stretch in the second quarter, Ohio State never had control of this game. Ohio State, I would argue they didn't even have control of that game, even if they did have the lead for a short stretch in the second quarter. But Ohio State never seemed to be comfortable. Ohio State never got into a rhythm. And it is a total credit to Michigan, the game plan, what the coaching staff did uh, to keep Ohio State uncomfortable, to dominate, to play to their strengths, and to win this game for the Michigan Wolverines. The stats back it up, too. The stats back up that this was nothing short of a butt kicking, okay? Uh, Just looking at them, I was blown away after the game. Because you see Michigan having success moving the ball. You see Michigan having success slowing down Ohio State. But to, ha- but to do what they did, 487 yards of total offense. How about this? Uh, 487 yards of total offense, 9.5 yards per completion for Cade McNamara. Of course, the stat that stands out, 297 yards rushing for Michigan, 7.2 yards per carry, five touchdowns for Hassan Haskins. That is complete and utter domination, especially when you factor in the other side. I mean, it's one thing to just move the ball at will on offense. It's another thing to do it on the defensive side as well, where Michigan just completely dominated Ohio State as well. Yes, Ohio State had a ton of passing yards, but 64 total yards rushing on 30 carries for Ohio State, 2.1 yards per rush. Again, a total butt kicking on both sides of the line. And I guess the stat that really jumped out to me when I was prepping this show this morning was this. Michigan had, how about this? Michigan had... Eight tackles for loss and four sacks. So their defensive line really got after it. Four sacks, eight TFLs, uh, three sacks for Aiden Hutchinson, who I believe has potentially earned a trip to New York for the Heisman Trophy ceremony. But on the other side, here's the part that nobody's talking about. We're talking about four, four, four sacks, eight TFLs for Michigan, zero sacks, zero tackles for loss for Ohio State. That stat blows my mind, which shows you just how dominant Michigan was in this game. That's what happened. That's how it went down. Now let's get to some of the bigger picture stuff because let me say there's a couple things that come to mind in terms of the bigger picture and what this all means. And the first one is this. It was exactly what I said, complete domination, and I am happy for Michigan fans from this perspective. This game left no doubt, right? It's one thing to beat your rival, but you know there's always those weird games where stuff happens and and you beat your rival, but you can't really hold it over their head. When Michigan was going to end this streak, I am so happy that it was in a game like this where from start to finish they were unquestionably the better team, unquestionably, in my opinion, better prepared, and just absolutely kicked butt from start to finish. There was no fluky call. There was no weird injury. I mean, imagine if I had heard during the week that C.J. Stroud was really, really, really sick and might not play. And I I was thinking to myself, imagine if C.J. Stroud sits out. Imagine if Michigan wins the game. And imagine if Ohio State fans could say, yeah, well, we'll never know what would have happened if C.J. Stroud played. There was no doubt. There was no debate. There was no argument over who was the better team in this game. And so for Michigan fans, I am happy that they not only won, uh, but I'm also very happy that they won in the manner that they did. The fact that Ohio State fans cannot say anything other than that Michigan was the best team. And I don't root for individual teams. I don't really care who wins and loses. But I will say this game also created a lot of questions for Ohio State as that defensive staff that came under a lot of scrutiny 
uh, in the game against uh, against Oregon earlier this year is again under fire. I've already seen some rumblings from some of the Ohio State uh, beat writers and message boards and things like that about what Ohio State is going to do coming out of this game. Ohio State fans, I, I'm not saying anybody, I'm not saying anybody feels bad for Ohio State fans, but it is clear after a game like that in a rivalry game where you're opponent was just clearly the better team better prepared better coached there are going to be questions to be asked out of that but credit to Michigan for leaving no doubt there wasn't a block field goal at the end of regulation there wasn't this it was just a wire to wire butt kicking secondly let me say this I know I said I don't root for individual teams I'm not you know sitting on the sidelines cheering wearing maize and blue I am happy for Jim Harbaugh though and it's for a few different reasons one I've said it on this show a million times I believe that this guy is, you know, underappreciated isn't the right word, but he takes so much crap for being an otherwise really good coach. And I've talked about it and I've shared the stats time and time again, but let's really closely, just for a second, really quickly, I should say, go through his resume at Michigan. Year one, 10 and three, coming off of a five and seven season last year under Brady Hoke. Year two, 10 and three. Year three, eight and five. Year four, nine, 10 and three. Year five, nine and four. Last year with COVID, two and four. This year, 11 and one and the Big Ten East champs. And I understand that when he was paid like Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney, he wasn't delivering Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney results. But this is a man that looked in the mirror. We'll talk about that in a minute. Took a pay cut. But I always believed that this guy got so much flack for being an otherwise really good football coach. Again, four 10 win se- or four, we now have in six full seasons, four 10-win seasons, one 11-win season, five 9-win seasons, and every year he's been at Michigan outside of the COVID year, he has won at least eight games, and I just thought he just continues to get crushed. So I was happy for him, and what I was really happy for him about was that he did it for his school. And it was interesting because I was watching the the the, the post game a little bit and when when he was asked about the game, you know, I expected him to talk about relief and I expected him to talk about we finally got over the hump and I expected him to 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 maybe show some emotion. And you could tell that for all the criticism of Jim Harbaugh, he was just happy. He wasn't happy for himself. He was happy for his players, the players that stuck with him after last season. He was happy for the fan base. He was happy for that university. And again, that's another reason why I've never really gotten and never understood why so many people have gotten such a sick joy out of seeing him fail, specifically in this Ohio State game. This is a guy that grew up in Ann Arbor clearly loves the University of Michigan and he didn't come back to Michigan for the money he didn't come back for the prestige he didn't come back for the fame he came back to restore his university to the heights that he believed that they should be at and so uh, you know to see him struggle year after year after year to get over the hump I know a lot of people like you know kind of joking about it and poking at him I just felt bad for the guy Imagine having a dream job, a job that you've been working your whole life for and coming up short in the biggest moments on that job. That was essentially Jim Harbaugh. So I was happy for him on Saturday when he was able to get over the hump, not because I got the sense that he was relieved. I'm never going to have to be asked about Ohio State again, but instead because he did for his school what he came to do, which is beat Ohio State and now compete for a Big Ten title. Obviously, we know it's all for naught if he doesn't beat Iowa this weekend, which we'll get into in a minute. But come on, you wouldn't listen to this show if you're a college sports fan. Imagine, you know, being a Kentucky fan, being a UConn fan, 
and you, a, a coach comes in and clearly loves the university, Arkansas fan, Tennessee fan, UCLA fan, whatever, loves the university and wants nothing more than to see the university succeed and can't get them over the hump. For seven years, can't get over the hump, finally does it. I believe you should be happy for Jim Harbaugh. You don't have to be a Michigan fan. If you're an Ohio State fan listening, I understand your frustration. But if you're a Michigan fan, I think you should be happy. I think you should celebrate, and I think you should appreciate this guy. Really quickly, I also give Jim Harbaugh a little bit of credit because I talked about this earlier in the season. But I I, I believe that it's really hard for older coaches to change late in their careers. Now, some of them have had more success than others. The, the blueprint for that is Nick Saban, obviously, right? Uh, John Calipari, I think, has done a good job this year of adjusting how he runs his program, and it looks like they're going to have success. Coach K, who I saw on, on Friday night in Vegas, you can criticize him for a lot, but he has evolved with the times. And Jim Harbaugh, I think, was, was really had some tough things to do last offseason in terms of looking in the mirror. This was a guy that had Stanford at the top of college football. This is a guy that won a suit that got to a Super Bowl. He didn't win it. This was a guy that had Michigan at a really elite level, if not greatness, and they went two and four last year. And so I give him credit because he looked himself in the mirror. He completely evolved as a head coach. He changed his coaching staff. Some of the older guys that, that, that were on the staff, no disrespect, he forced them out. Um, and I give credit to the University of Michigan as well for sticking with Jim Harbaugh, for saying, let's do one more reboot. Let's give you one more shot here, and let's figure out if we can get over the hump because we're not as far away as a lot of people think. Again, Sometimes it's time to make a coaching move. I said it with Dan Mullen last week. I thought this was the right move because things were clearly regressing rapidly in a normal season, non-COVID, whatever. But I also give Nebraska credit for keeping Scott Frost because it seems as though despite the 3-9 and nine record, uh, the, the program was moving in the right direction. I think Michigan had a tough choice last offseason. I think you could argue that uh, this time last year that they had peaked under Harbaugh, that it was never going to get better, and that it was time to move on. Instead, they give him one more reboot, and they are rewarded with an 11-1 regular season and a trip to the Big Ten championship game. But again, I'm not talking the P word. You know what that is uh, until you get past Iowa. Finally, happy for the players. Obviously, look, Aiden Hutchinson, a guy that uh, a Michigan legacy, his dad played at Michigan. He could have gone pro after last year, but he believed in the program. He talked about it after the game, manifesting that win. And finally, what I would say, I think Saturday was great for college football fans because college football is always at its best when, one, the best programs are at the highest level, but, two, these big games matter. These big games mean something. These big games have real stakes. I mean, even we'll talk about Auburn-Alabama in a minute, but that Auburn-Alabama game was so big because of the fact that if Alabama lost it, they're fighting for their playoff lives. And so you have to watch it just for the sake of Alabama's kind of side of it. But with Ohio State-Michigan, it hasn't always been that way uh, in recent years. And I believe it's good for college football that Ohio State is no longer just steamrolling Michigan. Now, I understand this could just be a one-year outlier. But what I also believe is that Jim Harbaugh proved he can do it. Jim Harbaugh had been close in one or two of the other seasons, but now he proved he could do it, and it's good for college football. Speaking of which, did you hear what Jim Harbaugh said after the game? You talk about a rivalry being back. Jim Harbaugh sort of just kind of going after Ryan Day. Did you hear what he said? This is what Jim Harbaugh said after the game. 
and he was asked about kind of some of the public comments from Ohio State's players and coaches about the idea uh, that, you know, Michigan wasn't even a rival anymore, that, uh, you know, Michigan is just another game on the schedule, whatever it was. Here is what Harbaugh said when he was kind of asked about uh, this comment. So uh, asked about some of Ryan Day's comments. Uh, and if you remember also, there was a, a lot of stuff during COVID in which apparently on a conference call, Ryan Day said something to the effect of, we're going to hang 100 on Michigan next time we see him. There was no game last year. So Harbaugh was asked about all that. This was his response. He was asked, uh, you know, kind of uh, if, the, if all the talk from Ohio State side motivated the team. He said, it did. The things you're thinking of are probably the same things I'm thinking of. But just move on with humble hearts and take the high road. There's definitely some stuff that people said that spurred us on even more for sure. Sometimes people that are standing on third base think they hit a triple, but they didn't. And then he walks out of the press conference. And so Jim Harbaugh, how about Jim Harbaugh being back? Yeah, we just move on with humble hearts and take the high roads. Then he says Ryan Day uh, hit, hit a triple and think, uh, is on third base and thinks he hit a triple. Incredible stuff, and what, what, what I think that means is that he believes that Ryan Day has talked a lot of crap, and it isn't justified because he inherited a great program from Urban Meyer. And I'll be honest, I had never really thought of the possibility that Ryan Day was potentially born on third base and thinks he hit a triple, but I don't think the more that you think about it that, that necessarily Jim Harbaugh is wrong. Uh, you know, Jim Harbaugh took over a 5-7 and seven program and in year one won 10 games. Ryan Day took over a national championship caliber program from Jim uh, from Urban Meyer, won the Big Ten the year before. To his credit, he recruited Justin Fields, but if you look at the overall kind of evolution of the Ohio State program under Ryan Day, let's take a look. Inherits a national championship caliber program from Urban Meyer. Year one, they're unbeatable. 13-0 in the regular season, cruise to the playoff, lose to Clemson in an instant classic game that they probably should have won. Uh, but 13-1, whatever. Clearly the guy's the answer. Clearly Ohio State's going to keep rolling. Then last year, COVID year, weird year. They go 6-0, and but a couple close games, win the college football playoff semifinal against Clemson, play Alabama in the championship, and lose. This year, Ohio State's 10-2. Lose to the two best teams on their schedule, Oregon and Michigan. And so I only bring it up because I... I don't necessarily think Jim Harbaugh is right that Ryan Day was born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. Um, what I do think, though, and, and by the way, this is clearly not me saying Ryan Day's a bad coach. Ryan Day's over. I think Ryan Day's awesome. But at the same time, if the Ohio State program was at the peak of its power, say, in year one under Ryan Day, takes over for Urban Meyer, has the infrastructure in place, has the players in place, adds Justin Fields. And if they come down a little bit, and if Michigan has kind of figured out their blueprint, they're going back to the ground and pound, they're going back to physicality, they're going back to toughness, and they're starting to go up a little bit, that's good for college football because we know what happened the last two times that these teams faced off. Neither game was competitive. Um, and, and this rivalry, as great as it sounds on paper, wasn't really much of a rivalry. So if we got swaggy Jim Harbaugh back talking crap to Ryan Day, they beat Ohio State. Maybe Ohio State's just not quite it. They're still one of the five best programs in college football, but they're not one of the three. And Michigan's one of the, the eight best programs, but not the 10th or 11th. Then all of a sudden, this rivalry gets a lot more interesting. So what I'll say is, great day for college football, great day for Michigan fans. And again, 
I know I'm not supposed to pick sides. I really don't ultimately root for winners and losers. I don't care who wins. But it was pretty cool to see that celebration at Michigan as really about 20 years of frustration come out. Absolutely convincing win. Leave no doubt. All right, let's quickly get to the rest of the weekend slate in college football. And, you know, what I would say really quickly is this. I I think I'm going to focus probably the next few minutes on the Iron Bowl only. Uh, I was going to talk Bedlam, but when half of the coaches who coached in Bedlam have left their schools within 24 hours, I don't really know that there's all that much to talk about. So we're going to uh, probably skip Bedlam. Uh, I may hit on a, 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 a moment or two in Bedlam momentarily, but let's start with the Iron Bowl. What a weird game. Alabama 24, Auburn 22 in four overtimes. First overtime game in the history of the Iron Bowl. It goes to four overtimes. We have the new overtime rule that I hate. So let's get into it. Let's break it down. The overtime rule is irrelevant in this story. The story of this, this was just like a tale of seven different games all at once. In the first half, Alabama could do nothing right. Auburn jumps out to a 7-0 lead. Uh, Alabama's best player, Jamison Williams, get not not, his, not their best player, but probably their most important player outside of Bryce Young, their quarterback. Jamison Williams, first-round first potential draft pick at wide receiver. He gets knocked out of the game for targeting. It was, it, we hate the targeting rule, but by the letter of the law, it was the right call. And so you're down your best wide receiver. The O-line was awful. Could not block anybody. Bryce Young was sacked seven times in this game. I would bet at least five or six of them were in the first half. And you went into halftime saying, Alabama's going to lose this game, and Alabama's going to get destroyed by Georgia next week in the SEC Championship. Like, like it's, it's embarrassing. I saw multiple people who know the Alabama program, who know the program well, who have seen basically every game of the Nick Saban era say, that was the worst half of offensive football that I have ever seen Alabama play under Nick Saban. Not blaming Nick Saban, maybe a little bl- bit of blame on offensive coordinator Bill O'Brien, maybe a little bit of blame on the running uh, or the offensive line coach Doug Marone. But it was, the, it, was, it was unwatchable. It was unbelievable to see Alabama just get completely tossed around by Auburn and Auburn's defensive front and all that good stuff. The crazy thing was, though, they come out of halftime. I don't know what adjustments they made, but all of a sudden it was a completely different game. To their defense's credit, their defense's credit, they were able to hold Auburn to just three points. And to Bryce Young's credit, he made some incredible plays down the stretch. The O-line made whatever adjustment they made to give him a little bit, of more, a little bit more time. And with what? 24 seconds left, if memory serves me correct, he hits... Ja'Cory Brooks, a backup wide receiver, a guy who I believe came into this game with like three catches on the season. Jamison Williams is out, hits Ja'Cory Williams, 28-yard touchdown pass. We go to overtime, in overtime, it's back and forth. Third overtime, we go to the two-point conversions, and Alabama wins 24-22. Incredible game, crazy game. Say this for Alabama. They had every reason to quit. They had every reason to fold, and they kept battling, and we're going to get to that in a second. Now, I do want to, before I get to Alabama, I do want to talk a little bit about Auburn because Auburn is not too, is not without blame for how this all went down. Um, as I always say, sometimes the more interesting story is in the losing locker room, and to some degree that is true at Auburn uh, because there were two things that struck me that were really, really, really dumb. I just thought this game was completely mismanaged from about the start of the fourth quarter on. Uh, and, and one of them is about Brian Harson, the head coach we'll get to in a second. The other one, uh, it, it was a huge play. And you know I hate to criticize 
college kids and, and stuff that happens between the white lines. They're all trying their best. But there was a big play that was very costly to Auburn. If you watch the broadcast, Gary Danielson wouldn't stop talking about it. But Tank Bigsby, Auburn's star running back, late in the game, under two minutes to go. Alabama is being forced to use his timeouts. Tank Bigsby ends up going out of bounds, which allows Alabama to save a timeout, which allows them to get enough time back, which allows them to make the plays needed to tie the game and ultimately win in overtime. Now, I hate that this happened for Tank Bigsby. I'll also say I thought it was a little unfair for Gary Danielson to keep going back to it, only because if you watch the game, I think the kid wanted to stay in bounds, but at the same time, um, I, I thought it was a really heads-up play by Alabama safety, I believe it was Jordan Battle, who grabbed him and physically threw him out of bounds to stop the clock and allow Alabama to save that timeout. So you can't not say that that factored into the result, but I also think it was a very heads-up, bright play by Alabama. Now, what wasn't heads-up, and this is my opinion, I thought Brian Harson, the Auburn coach, made a very big tactical mistake by not going for two at the end of the first overtime. If you guys remember overtime, the way that it works is each team gets the ball at the 20-yard line, driving in for the first two overtimes. Then you go to basically two-point plays to end the game. That limits the plays, that limits the hits, all that good stuff. I hate it, but that's irrelevant. But Auburn was the team that got the ball second in overtime. Alabama scores a touchdown to go up 17-10. to Auburn then immediately scores a touchdown on their possession, and I thought at that point Brian Harson should have gone for two. You're on a three-game losing streak. You have nothing to lose. Your team is beat up. You're, ba- you, you're playing a backup quarterback, first of all, on TJ Finley. On top of playing a backup quarterback, it's worth noting that he was beat up. He could barely walk, um, and you're in the Iron Bowl. You have nothing to play for. You're headed for a 6-6 six and six season. Go ahead. Go for the two-point conversion. Try to end the game. Take the criticism if you don't come through. And I'll mention, they had a couple, they had a nice two-point play to to force the fourth overtime. So it's not as though they didn't have a trick in their bag. And I thought that was a very tactical mistake by Auburn. It's what I would have done. It's worth noting that's what Kansas did against Texas a few weeks ago in their overtime game. They just said, look, we're going to try to win this thing right now because the longer this game goes out, the deeper, more talented team is going to have the advantage, and that's exactly what happened as Alabama wins again, 24-22 to in four overtimes. Really quickly, I do want to kind of go bigger picture here for a second, and I do want to say this game both gave me a completely new respect for Alabama and a completely new respect for Bryce Young, and it actually also kind of frankly made me reevaluate how I feel about this Alabama team, and let me explain why. If you listen to this show, and we have a lot of Bama fans that listen because I've heard from some of you, um, I've been very critical of this Alabama team. And I think it's pretty simple. I hold them to the standard of the greatest Nick Saban teams of all time. I understand that Alabama, it is national championship or bust every season. And if I see a team that is headed more likely towards bust than national championship then I'm going to call them out on it. And I felt like most of the media all year would not acknowledge that this is a flawed Alabama team. But what I realized in watching this game is that while this is a flawed team, they have an insane amount of heart. Remember, they are on the road against a rival. The rival is throwing everything they got at them. They fall down, and then they make enough plays, and they figure out how to win this game. Listen, this is a flawed team. I don't think they're beating Georgia next week. We'll talk about that throughout the week, but I don't think they're beating Georgia. And so 
I, that was the standard that I was holding them to. Can they get to the SEC championship game? Can they beat Georgia? Can they win the national championship? I don't think they can, but every team isn't built the same way. And even Nick Saban has been trying to tell us for weeks that this is not one of those teams. And he said it in his press conference. He said it on, on Wednesday or Thursday last week. Like, guys, these are college kids. They're doing the best. Stop being jerks. And I, I don't want to say he was talking to me. Because he wasn't talking to me, but he was kind of talking to people like me that hold this team to the standard of the greatest Alabama teams of all time. And that may not be this group of guys, but damn it, do they play hard. Again, rivalry game, on the road, uh, season on the line. You're getting beat up in the first half. You make enough adjustments. You figure out a way. Uh, Your best wide receiver, your best playmaker is out of the game and you find a way to win this game. So I just want to give Alabama a little bit of credit. I would also add, I got to give a ton of credit to Bryce Young. And this is another one where, you know, I don't have a Heisman vote. If I did, he probably would have been my front runner coming in. And I thought he's been awesome this year because, again, I don't think he has the talent around him that that Tua or that Mac Jones had over the last couple years. But, you know, I said, okay, let's stop a little bit with the Bryce Young hype. But, man, did this kid deliver. I mean, first of all, the toughness of this kid sacked seven times. I mean, he is beat up, and he pulls himself off the mat. And every single time he gets up, and he's making plays, and he's doing what he's got to do. And he finds a way to hit that dart to force overtime and then eventually lead his team to victory. So this game gave me a newfound appreciation for Alabama. This might not be a vintage team, but they got heart. They got toughness. They're going to fight. In some ways, this made me more concerned about the Georgia game. I don't think they're beating Georgia, but we sh- they showed that they're going to be they're going to fight till the end to try and make it happen. And man, did this give me a new amount of respect for Bryce Young because he does not have nearly the weapons that a lot of these guys have had through the years at Alabama. And he found a way to get his team the win on the road. Credit to that team. Credit to Alabama. Credit to Alabama. We'll see what happens next week against Georgia. But I'm doing the show today, and they deserve the credit that they're getting. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. And I do want to switch gears, and I do want to wrap on another college football coaching hire that as of about 10 a.m. Eastern time, 11 a.m., whenever it was announced, felt like a really, really, really big hire that now feels like less of a hire with the Lincoln Riley News. That is Billy Napier to Florida. Before we do, I should mention, by the way, I I, I did kind of come to one quick decision and that is that we will have a bonus episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast this week on Tuesday, and it will be College Hoops focused because many of you know I was at that iconic Gonzaga-Duke game on Friday. I was at the much less iconic Gonzaga-UCLA game on Tuesday, and so I have a lot of reaction, a lot of thoughts on those two games, and I do feel like we should do some College Hoops. I just don't know that today's show with the Lincoln-Riley News is the right spot. So I will talk some college hoops. We'll do a bonus episode on Tuesday. It'll probably be a quicker show in general, maybe 25, 20 minutes, something like that. But just get you ready for the week ahead in college hoops, everything that we saw over Feast Week. Again, though, I do think that we should wrap with college football. And we should start with, as I just said a moment ago, a hire that looked awesome as of about 10, 11, 12 p.m. on Sunday, right up until the Lincoln-Riley news shattered all of it, and that is Billy Napier going to Florida. Billy Napier has been the head coach at Louisiana for the last four years. And let me just say, 
I think overall this is a really, really good hire, really, really the right move for Florida coming off of the Dan Mullen era. And so let's get into it. Let's break it down. And before we do, I think I should give you a little background on Billy Napier because I do think for me to explain why this is such a good hire, I do think it's important to give the context of what he has done in his career, not just the last four years at Louisiana. First of all, Son of a high school coach, I always like that. I think that's good. He's been around football his whole life. He loves it. It's his passion. It's his this. It's his that. So that's one. Two, on top of that, um, I also think it's worth noting, he may be, and I think, I, I, this, I think this is right, he may be the only person that has ever coached under both Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban. I am not 100% positive if that is accurate, but I believe that it is accurate as he coached under Dabo Sweeney, uh, he was at Clemson from 2006 to 2010. I believe it was one season uh, with Dabo Sweeney. The other ones were with Tommy Bowden, the head coach, uh, uh, you know, that was there before Dabo Sweeney. Uh, beyond that, I will also say that he spent quite a bit of time under Nick Saban at Alabama 2013 to 2016 and also served as an analyst at Alabama in 2011. I think that's important because I think he got two very unique looks at two very unique ways to coach a college football program. Dabo Sweeney, I think he's intense. I think he's serious, but I think he also knows how to have fun. Nick Saban, we know what he's about, structure, organization, the process, all that stuff. And I think you can take stuff from both of them and apply it to what you do. I should mention, by the way, he was on probably at Alabama, maybe the greatest staff in the history of college football. I tweeted this out, got a retweet from Lane Kiffin, I might add. Uh, but do you understand how good the staff was at 2015 at Alabama when he was there? Here was the staff at Alabama in 2015, which Billy Napier was a part of. One, head coach Nick Saban, probably heard of him, Alabama National Championship. The offensive coordinator on that staff, Lane Kiffin, head coach, Ole Miss, one of the best offensive minds in college football. Defensive coordinator, Kirby Smart, head coach, number one team in the country. Wide receivers coach Billy Napier, who's now the head coach at Florida, Offensive line coach Mario Cristobal, who's now the head coach at Oregon. Mel Tucker was the defensive backs coach on that team. So you now have five assistant coaches off that staff, plus Nick Saban, who are all coaching at the Power 5 level. Every single one of them won at least nine games this year in their current role, including Billy Napier at Louisiana. In terms of what I think he'll bring to Florida, first of all, I like him because he is a program builder. This was a guy that got to Louisiana. Louisiana had really struggled prior to his arrival, and every year it got a little bit better. Year one, goes 7-7 seven and seven as the head coach. Does go to a bowl game, though. Year two, 11-3. Year three, last year during COVID, um, goes 10-1, and one, beats Iowa State. Year four, goes 11-1 this current season only loss was to Texas in week one. From there, they have gone on to win 11 straight games to close the regular season. So program builder. Um, and I give this guy credit, too. I should have mentioned this off the top. But one thing that I love about him, he's been patient. He's trusted the process to use a Nick Saban term. Um, and when I look at his background and his current situation, remember what I've told you about him throughout this process. He is a guy that has been kind of one of these group of five coaches that has been highly coveted for years. And he has taken his time. He hasn't rushed into a job that he didn't want or he was not ready for. And frankly, turned down a lot of really good opportunities 
for the great one where he believed that he could go and compete for national championships. Schools like Mississippi State wanted to talk to him in recent years. He didn't seem interested. Schools like South Carolina wanted to talk to him in recent years, and he didn't seem interested. He was waiting for that great job, and he now has it at Florida where he can hopefully possibly compete for national championships and compete at the highest level. It's really funny. I was talking to somebody this weekend, very smart business guy that I know, and he said, Aaron, in life, there are no such things as tough decisions. If it feels like a tough decision, it probably isn't right for you right now. Wait until it is. Billy Napier, Billy Napier has abided by it. He has continued to focus on Louisiana. He has continued to focus on building that program. He has built it into one of the best group of five programs, and now he is able to move on to the next level. So in terms of why I like this hire, one damn good coach, program builder. On top of that, this guy is, I heard an interview with him the other day, and he is like one of the most detail-oriented people that I've ever heard of, and I think that probably comes from that Nick Saban coaching tree, Nick Saban organization. This is a guy with a plan. He has a plan for year one versus year two. He has a plan for January versus February, and he is going to implement it. I mean, to hear him talk about it, I encourage you, if you can find it, Billy Napier did an interview with a radio host in Louisiana named Jordy Collada, uh, who is very plugged in in the LSU scene. I think at the time, Billy Napier was trying to angle for that LSU job. And at that time, Billy Napier explained who he is as a coach, what his philosophy is, and it was an incredible listen. He says, you know, we got six tiers to recruiting. Uh, January through March, it's this. March through this, it's that. Uh, we have 12 different regions. Each coach has to. It's unbelievable how disciplined he is. And then on top of that, besides the fact that he is a really good coach, a really good, uh, very organized person, he has had a ton of success. He built Louisiana into one of the best group of five jobs in America. The other reason that I like it is really simple. I think he gets what it means to coach in the SEC, obviously with his background with Nick Saban, and he loves to recruit. And this goes back to, again, the stuff that we talked about with Dan Mullen when Dan Mullen eventually fell out of favor. What was Dan Mullen's biggest problem? He never handled the PR stuff well. He never handled the off-the-field stuff well. And he was a guy that simply wasn't dedicated to recruiting, wasn't committed to recruiting. It showed in the classes that he signed. It showed in some of his public comments. That is not Billy Napier, okay? I don't know a ton about Billy Napier, but I know a few things. One, if you're going to coach under Nick Saban, you have to be able to recruit. And that is something that he has done in his last three years, his, the three full classes that he signed at Louisiana. Number one class in the Sun Belt in 2019, number one class in the Sun Belt in 2020, number one class in the Sun Belt in 2021. That might sound stupid. You might say it's the Sun Belt. You might say it doesn't matter. I would disagree, and let me explain why. The reason I would say that it matters is this, is that we... The SEC, it's just a different beast, right? And we just talked about it with Lincoln Riley a minute ago. The SEC is a scary place, man. But the one thing that all the successful programs in the SEC have and all the successful head coaches in the SEC have is that they all love to recruit. And recruiting is the number one priority. Recruiting is the number one lifeline of the program. And that is something that trickles down from anyone who has ever coached under Nick Saban. Right now, the only guy that's that's recruiting at anywhere near the level of Nick Saban right now is Kirby Smart. Well, where did Kirby Smart learn it from? Nick Saban. Who's the best recruiting program on the West Coast? Mario Cristobal. Where did he learn it? At least in part under Nick Saban. And so Billy Napier is a great recruiter, loves to recruit, understands the portal, understands the high school scene, understands how to meld them both together. But he understands, number one, end of the day, he is the guy 
that sets the tone at Florida for who is recruiting. And I think that's important, right? Because you can go out and sign this coach, uh, sign that coach, whatever. Billy Napier knows how hard Nick Saban recruits because Billy Napier coached with Nick Saban. He knows how hard Kirby Smart recruits because he coached with Kirby Smart. And so when I look at this guy and I look at what he is capable of doing, I don't know if he's going to be better than Kirby Smart. I don't know if he's going to be better than Nick Saban. I don't know if it's teacher versus pupil. I don't know if he's going to lead Florida to multiple national championships. But what I do know is this. He knows what Alabama is doing. He knows what Georgia is doing. And he knows what he needs to do in his program to compete at the highest level. And so will it work? I don't know. But what I would also just tell you is, to me, he checks all the boxes. Program builder been around football, obviously been around smart football minds at the highest level when you look at not only Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney, but also all the assistant coaches that he has been under, including, uh, you know, working with Lane Kiffin on the offensive side of the ball at Alabama. Mario Cristobal is the offensive line coach. I just think this guy is going to get it, get what it takes to build a program, get what it takes to maintain a program and get him to the highest level. I know it doesn't feel as sexy as Lincoln Riley. I know it doesn't feel as sexy as some other stuff. But I'll tell you this, I think Florida fans are really happy with it. I think they know they got a guy that has proven an ability to to build a program, understands the SEC, understands recruiting, understands who he is competing with. And I get the sense that Florida fans actually really like this hire. And so I'm very, very curious to see how it goes. Uh, I think it's time for me to get out of here. Before we do, a couple announcements. One, first of all, as I mentioned, we are rocking and rolling uh, with uh, we are rocking and rolling with some merchandise. Full full details on the last episode of the Aratora Sports Podcast. Uh, but a lot of merchandise coming out over these next few weeks. A lot of stuff going on. Be ready for bonus episodes of the Aratora Sports Podcast. I didn't say it off the top, but this is going to be kind of a weird couple weeks because we are going to have news coming really fast and really furious over the next two, three, four weeks. So be ready for that. We're going to cover a lot of college football coaching news transfer stuff I think it's going to be an interesting few weeks in the transfer portal so stay tuned for that I should mention by the way Aaron Torres online we will have a college football transfers page keeping you constantly updated on all the names and news and notes and things that you need to know about transfers in college football so make sure to stay tuned to Aaron Torres online also we started an Aaron Torres online specific Twitter page for college basketball transfer or college football transfers. If you remember, we did it for college basketball too, but the new Twitter handle is at CFB transfers. If you love the comings and goings in college football, that is a page you are going to want to follow. That said, I think I'm going to get out of here. Long show today, fun show today. I appreciate your guys' support. Before I get out of here, I want to remind you, please make sure that you are subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you are subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back Tuesday with a bonus college basketball episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Also the possibility, of course, that there's going to be more football to talk about. But that is all for today. Hope everybody has a great Monday. We will be back soon. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.